Today we are in Luke chapter 8, verses 16 down to verse 21. Let me read this for us, beginning in verse 16. The words of our Lord Jesus. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, just as we sang earlier, we ask that you would speak and that in turn we would listen, that you would help us to do so, and that by your word you would shape us, conform us, and fashion us into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whose glory and in whose name we pray and ask these things. Amen. When you read through the four Gospels, you'll notice some of Jesus' favorite phrases that he repeats frequently in his teachings. For example, Truly, truly, I say to you. Or there also is, You have heard it said, blank, but I say to you, blank. You see that quite often in the Sermon on the Mount, at least in Matthew's rendition of it. And high up on that list is also this saying, which we actually saw last week in the previous passage in verse 8. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, when I was young, I used to think, what does that even really mean? I mean, everyone just heard what Jesus said. And so, yes, they did hear his words. And yes, they do have ears. I mean, those two flaps on the side of your head, you know, some have bigger flaps than others and others are more interestingly shaped, but we all have them. And so, yes, they have ears and that's what they're there for hearing. And so they apparently have ears to hear. So what's the issue? Well, in my spiritual ignorance, I didn't realize that what I thought was an obvious assumption was, in fact, the very issue at hand, because it cannot be assumed that just because someone physically hears Jesus's words, that they really heard it in spirit and in truth. You see, the, the acoustic sound waves of Jesus's words might sonically enter into one's ears, and those syllables might, might, might be accurately parsed in the brain and and the resulting words of logical discourse be processed. And yet, even so, the listener could still end up unaffected by what they heard, as if they never heard those words at all in the first place. And that's what Jesus is getting at. You can hear, but end up not really hearing. Hence, he urges everybody in verse 18, which we just read, take care then, not just to hear, not just be careful to hear, 
But be careful how you hear. Meaning there is a right way to hear and a wrong way to hear Jesus' words. And the simple test to know whether or not we are hearing rightly and truly is this. Are the words of Jesus actually influencing you and effecting change in you? It's really simple. That's how you can know that your spiritual ears are actually functional and operative as opposed to idle and, in fact, deaf. How much does your life look like the words written on the pages of Scripture that you consume on a regular basis? And how much are you striving to become more like the words that you read and you hear? Because the evidence of true hearing of the word is that the word has a substantial effect on the person truly hearing. And this is the point of this little parable regarding a lamp that Jesus tells in verse 16. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it up at the top on a stand so that everyone would see the light. To put it another way, maybe in a more modern fashion it would be like jesus saying no one goes into a dark room and then flips on a light switch only to immediately cover that lamp with a blanket to keep that room dark that's just nonsense it's a waste of electricity if that were the end goal then just leave the switch off in the first place and don't even turn it on if all you wanted to do was keep the room dark because it is already dark And so Jesus says this to make the point that God never brings his word into a darkened heart and lights it up only for it to remain unchanged, still in its original, unholy, spiritually dim condition. In other words, it is illogical and counterintuitive for a Christian to look indistinguishable before and after his supposed conversion. There must be a real effect that the word is having on the person who hears with true spiritual ears. You see, this parable is directly connected to the previous parable of the sower, as you can tell by the one long quotation that's actually uninterrupted from verse 10 down to the end of verse 18. Now remember last week in the parable of the sower, Jesus explains that the seed that is sown represents the word of God preached. And out of all four types of terrain that the seed falls upon, it is only the good soil into which the seed is deeply planted. And as a result, the distinct marker is that the seed of God's word actually bears its fruit in that person's life. That's how you know that there was a successful implantation and so in the same way the distinct marker that god's word has not merely grazed the surface of one's ears or just remained lodged in someone's brain but has actually penetrated deep down into the depths of one's soul is that that the individual lives are emanating the holy character of god's word and how they think and how they behave And how they conduct themselves. Because God shines the light of his word upon us in order that we might share in his light. 
be changed into the likeness of His radiance and so begin to emit for ourselves the very light of His glory and holy character. And this is why we see Jesus saying in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. But then He also says to His disciples in Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, You are the light of the world. Whoa, what's going on? Did Jesus get His pronouns mixed up? No, it's because Jesus explained in John chapter 12 verse 36, I am here as the light of the world. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. So that you yourselves might become children of light and actually be embodied by this light. You know, I know we had quite a few birthdays recently in the life of our church. And I imagine that if you celebrated your birthday with the birthday cake and a candle, you notice that there's a candle that's not lit And then you take a match with the flame, and when that match comes into contact with that unlit birthday candle, that flame is transferred, and now that candle emits that same light. It shares in the light of the light that lit the candle in the first place. And that's the same idea, you see. Just as a lamp that has been lit is now governed by that light by which it was lit, and now as a result it shines that light, So, all who truly hear the Word of God must be governed by its rule and influence, and as a result, shine the effect of its governing power. In other words, it doesn't say much that someone is willing to sit and listen to the Bible and even grow in knowledge of God's commandments over many years. But what Jesus is pressing is, the Bible must actually be commanding that individual and governing over his or her life and thinking. They must be ruled by the pages of Scripture and seek to yield themselves more to it. Hence, Psalm eighteen twenty-eight says, It is you who light my lamp, O Lord. My God, you give and you lighten my darkness. Well, how does God light the lamp? What is the light that now characterizes us? Well, Psalm 119 tells us, Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. That God's word actually dictates my every step. That I seek to be corrected by the word when I take a misstep. And I recognize that I cannot walk without it. I have no wisdom apart from the word of God. This is the one in whom the light of God's word has truly entered and illuminated their hearts. You see, Jesus is honestly asking us, are you listening to my words carefully? Now, what does it mean to listen to it carefully? It means to listen with the full intent of submitting to it. Not just learning more information about it, but with the intention to obey it. When you open the Bible at home, or when you come to Sunday service, do you come before the Word of God willing to be changed by it? And expecting that there's something in you that God needs to correct and sharpen and conform to the perfect image of Christ. Now, as always, I have to clarify that true spiritual hearing does not mean that you are sinless and perfect in holiness, But it means that you are listening with a sincere ambition and longing to be perfected 
by the grace of God to be brought into continual maturation and completion in your sanctification. And so it describes the posture of one who says in his heart, Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? What must I repent of? Where must I grow? I don't want to just read your word, God. I want your word to read me. And as your word reads and searches me, I continually find that I need to set my eyes more on eternity rather than on earth. Help me, God. I need to become more detached to the things of this world, lest I be choked by a love for it and so cease to bear fruit. Purify me, God. And I need to grow in humility and become less self-centered that I might better understand what it means to live a truly God-centered life. Teach me, God. Make me more like your son and make me less like my old self. This is the one who has ears to hear. This attitude, this posture, this humility. There is a prayerful repentance and a prayerful dependence on God's sanctifying grace because their sanctification is their highest priority in life. But the danger is for those who hear the word of God with their bodily ears, with, those, with these things. But at the end of the day, all it is is just good doctrine and teaching. Even good doctrine, good theology. But it's all contained in a vacuum. It has little impact on their daily living and thinking. Those who, you know, they may do all the Bible studies that they want, but there is scarce thought of how they need to become more like the Bible that they study. There is little repentance out of intimate love for Christ, out of a continual yearning to put off the old self and to put on the new self after the likeness of God. Instead, they're quite content with just kind of staying as their old self. The same mindset and ambition and motivation in life and the pleasures of it as before they purportedly began following Jesus. It is what Paul describes to Timothy as those who are always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. How tragic is that? Do you realize that someone can accept the Bible, even assent to Scripture and acknowledge it as objective truth, and yet never have that truth exercise dominion over them. It is possible for someone to mentally acknowledge that the Bible is the Word of God, but not really get that it is the Word of God as evidenced by the response to it or lack thereof. Again, it's the same concept of hearing, but not really hearing. You know, you can say and acknowledge that it's God's word, but apparently it hasn't actually sunk in that these are the words of the eternal, holy God and creator and sovereign ruler under whose reign you were created to live and to walk. You know, I hope that all of us, when we come to Sunday worship and hear the preaching of the word, regardless of who's preaching it, 
I hope that we are listening by faith to ultimately the voice of God, not the voice of man. Because the substance of true preaching is the exposition of God's word, not the dispensing of the wisdom or eloquence or the lofty opinions of the preacher. Listen, let let me just say, I absolutely hate public speaking. I hate it. I, I it just there are a few things that I detest more than than having to give a public oration. It's not just that I get stage fright. I mean, maybe that's a part of it, but more so, it's that I despise the thought of getting in front of a crowd of people and demanding everyone's time and undivided attention with my opinions. I mean, it seems kind of presumptuous. And, and, and many times. People are surprised that I hate public speaking and I genuinely hate it. And they say, wow, but that's what you do for a living. I mean, you give a sermon every Sunday. No, I don't. This is not public speaking merely. This is not that because I'm not preaching my words, but I'm preaching God's words. It's vastly different. And I can tell that it's very different by how I instinctively feel about it. Uh, you know, I get more nervous doing the announcements than, than opening up God's word and, and preaching it to you. Because when I preach, I stand before the people of God, but not directly. I always have the word of God open before me, sitting right here, standing between me and the congregation. And so when I speak, though it be merely my words, They are words that are channeled through the word of God. And I am continually hiding behind the authority of what God has spoken and what he presently speaks to us each week as we turn our hearts and minds to scripture, trusting that it is indeed the words and thoughts of God himself. My goodness, I am so glad that God has not called me to give my worthless opinions every Sunday. But instead, he has called me to simply be faithful to deliver and expound the eternal truth of his word. That is the substance of what people hear. For those who have ears to hear it. And you know, my desperate hope and prayer every day of the week in preparation for Sunday is that when we gather for worship, that all of you are by faith being attuned to God's voice and hearing by faith the voice of God through the exposition of His Word. Not just my annoying voice that you have to bear with. The point is this. That if we believe then that this is God's voice that we ultimately hear, not man's, then what are we doing about it? Because if it's just God's words, then His words must have commanding authority over our lives because He is the authority of heaven and earth. And we must surrender ourselves to it each day, each week, every hour of our lives. We cannot simply go on about our day unaffected by it without His word governing every moment of how we live. To do so, is to be in grave spiritual danger 
as Jesus warns us in verse 17. He says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Jesus is saying, In due time, everything will be revealed. The truth will all be made known as to whether or not you really received God's word and responded to it in genuine and living faith. And so, the urge is this, please, for your sake, if you are merely hearing and not doing and showing a counterfeit faith, please, for your sake, give it up. Give up any hypocrisy and pretense of faith because you won't get away with it. In the end, you are not as clever as the devil would have you believe. You can run, but you cannot hide from God. You may fool some temporarily. You can fool me. But as I always say, the joke's on you because I'm already a fool. You can fool your pastor, but you will never fool God in the end. You cannot maintain this merely surface-level hearing without eventually suffering serious eternal consequences because Jesus makes it clear in verse 18, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Those who bear no fruit of the word that they regularly hear and continue to suppress it even the semblance of faith that they thought that they had is all going to be taken away because they never had it in the first place. And they will be in no different a circumstance than those who outright rejected the gospel and denied Christ. Just as we saw in the parable of the sower, there were three categories of different grounds on which the seed fell. Nuanced, but all to the same. They were worthless, and they were not the true implantation of God's seed. And so the loving warning is this, give up the facade while you still can, and confess to Jesus in honesty and in truth. Perhaps some of us here this morning need to heed this warning. Now, only God knows who it is, but if you find that you are guilty of spiritual deafness and idleness. No matter how many years and decades you have spent hearing the word with your physical years, then today is the day to repent in all truth and humility. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. But for those of you who are listening with an open ear and with a humble heart, for those of you who are sincerely seeking to heed the words of your Master and live it out, Jesus has great encouragement to give to you as you persevere in true and living faith. Notice that in verse 18, it says, For to the one who has, more will be given. It's not just that the one who doesn't bear fruit will lose whatever he thought he had, But it's that the one who is indeed bearing the fruit of God's word, the one who is truly listening to God's voice, that person will be given even more. 
Now, first of all, this shows us the immense generosity of God's heart for his people. That he is really the generous giver of every blessing who gives and gives and gives even more to whom he delights. But the question is, more of what? What it is that God gives more of? Well, it's more of what that person has. Right? It says, to the one who has, more will be given. But this doesn't mean material possessions, wealth, health, prosperity, earthly pleasures. I mean, hypocrites and false converts, they have all of those things. And it's, in fact, out of love for those things that they never bear fruit. And so what is it that the one who has ears to hear has that the spiritually deaf doesn't have? Well, ultimately, it's Christ himself, isn't it? Intimacy with Jesus. His profound love for them. The Father's delight over them. The Spirit's ministry and encouragement to them. It's true salvation and all the blessings that flow from it. Because the substance of true faith is knowing God. And being known by Him. Growing in the assurance of His love. And growing to trust the wonder of His grace more and more. These are the things that are most precious to the believer. The spiritually deaf doesn't really care for these things. But for those who have ears to hear. What they want to hear most at the end of the day. No matter what is going on. No matter what the circumstance is, the thing that they long to hear the most is that God is pleased with them. You know why? Because they have a real relationship with them or with Him and Him with them as their Father because they are truly His child. They long to please the God that they love and they're grieved when they don't and if they could just be reassured that God is well pleased with them their hearts will swell with satisfaction and joy you know I can recall in the past years when my wife and I went through some very sorrowful trials and through all the grief and pain we would look at each other and just with tears in our eyes just say, you know, at the end of the day, all we want to know, what I just want to be reassured of because I'm lacking this reassurance, is that God still loves me and that He has brought these things about not because He hates me, not because He has abandoned me, but that He is very much pleased with me. And if I could just be reassured of that, we would say to one another, then we can bear through this and we'll be okay. You see, this is the thing that false believers do not have. A true relationship with God, a taste of His grace and the joy that comes from not just loving Him, but being loved by Him. And Jesus promises that more of that will be given to those 
who listen to him and walk by faith and obedience to him. You know what's one of the greatest joys and blessings of obeying God? It's not that you earn God's increasing favor, but that you grow in the experience of his love because you feel so much joy and pleasure in pleasing God. And so you grow to better grasp just how much God has eternally loved you in Christ. And Jesus promises that if you obey, more of this will be given. And actually, that's what's immediately conveyed to us here in this next passage, beginning in verse 19. Because that same day as when Jesus told this parable, we're told that his family members were looking for him, but they couldn't get to him because of the overwhelming crowds that surrounded him. And so his mom and his siblings passed a message through the crowds requesting to speak with their family member, with Jesus. And yes, Jesus had earthly siblings. Joseph and Mary had kids together after Jesus, contrary to what the Roman Catholics say about the perpetual virginity of Mary, as though celibacy were intrinsically superior spiritually. It's not true. They had other children, uh, biologically, Joseph and Mary together after Jesus. In any case, when Jesus heard this request, Jesus responded with the most astonishing words. He said, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, Jesus did not say these things to announce that he had disowned his earthly family. Okay, Jesus was not a rebellious family member who had a bad relationship with his parents and his siblings. Quite the opposite, actually. Because Jesus, remember, was the very paragon of humanity in that he honored his father and mother in perfect fulfillment of the fifth commandment, as with all other commandments of his law. He loved others as himself, even to the point of denying himself to the uttermost. And no doubt, he displayed that same kind of love for his closest kin of both his earthly parents and his siblings. And it's for this very reason that what Jesus says is absolutely astounding that he has a bond that is greater and tighter than even the physical bond he had with his own family blood. Because it is the spiritual bond of God's family and everyone who hears his words and obeys it prove themselves to be members of that family. And this is such an incredible statement that Jesus makes. And there's so many things that we can glean from it. But I just want to make the point this morning that this is spoken by Jesus not as a threat to threaten us to obedience, but actually as the highest blessing communicated to us to show us the sheer extent of his love for his people, the household of God. Here, Jesus is illustrating the intensity of his bond with those who have ears to hear and strive to walk in obedience to his words. Because again, we need to understand, Jesus loved his earthly family like no other. He loved Mary, his earthly mother. He loved Joseph, his earthly father. He loved his siblings 
because He is the manifestation of divine infinite love in the true nature of humanity. And so, listen, there was no better family member on earth than this man, Jesus of Nazareth. No better brother, no better cousin, no better son. In fact, let me show you just how much Jesus loved His mom in the realness of His humanity. Turn with me to John chapter 19. This is Jesus' crucifixion. And I suppose that in God's providence, it's good that we are here in light of Passion Week and that this coming Friday is Good Friday as we remember the crucifixion of Jesus. But of course, it was here that He hung on the cross in unspeakable agony and pain, suffering for the sins of those He came to save. And John tells us that at the crucifixion, there were some of His disciples there, some of His followers watching this horror unfold of Jesus' suffering. And John tells us in verse 25 that among those were standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother. Mary, his mother, was there beneath the cross of Jesus. Now, most likely, Joseph had passed away quite early, which is why we don't hear much about him uh, after the accounts of Jesus' birth. And so Mary was there uh, at the cross, probably as a widow without a husband. Now, can you imagine, for all your mothers out there especially, can you imagine what it was like for Mary to see Jesus on the cross? You know, there was much grief that day from the faithful disciples of Jesus as they watched their Savior and Messiah suffer. But for Mary, there was a double grief as she saw the agony and death of not only her Savior, but her Son, the child whom she she carried in the womb for nine months, the child she held at her breast and nursed through the night, every night, The child she raised with joy, hearing his first words, celebrating his first birthday, the first time he learned to walk, and how she comforted him when he fell down by picking him back up and holding him in her arms. What a mystery the incarnation is. But our Lord Jesus was truly God and truly man in the full experience of humanity, just like you and me. It is Therefore, not a heresy to say that although Mary recognized and worshipped Jesus as her eternal God and Savior, also in a real human way, she would never forget the precious memories of Him as her baby boy. And Jesus knew this. And likewise, He loved His mom and honored her. In his heart. And so, as Mary wept over her Savior and child hanging on the cross before her, it says in verse 26, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's the Apostle John, the author who is writing this, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You know what happened? While on the cross, Jesus noticed out of the corner of his swollen, bleeding eyes, 
the sight of his grieving mother. And because he loved her so much, he was so grieved to see her grieving, and he was so concerned for the sorrow that would overwhelm her, especially as a widow who was now losing her firstborn son and watching him die at the hands of lawless men, that Jesus told John to adopt her as his own mother and tend to her. And Jesus was in the middle of saving this sinful, wretched world. And while he was actively enduring the unbearable wrath of God on the cross, while he was struggling even to breathe from the pain and barely keeping himself alive until the ninth hour, the moment he saw his earthly mother with sorrow filling her heart, Jesus considered her pain more significant than his own. And with the limited breaths that he had remaining, he spent them to utter those words of comfort to his mom and to charge the Apostle John with the responsibility of taking her in and caring for her for the rest of his life because Jesus wanted to make sure that his mom would not be alone. This is how much Jesus loved his earthly mother. He loved his earthly family better than any of us ever have nor any of us ever will. And yet, for all of his love for his mother, for all of his love for his earthly family, what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 8 is that he reserves a greater and more intimate love for his spiritual family. If you are amazed by the extent of his love for Mary, his mother, Jesus tells us that all of that is but a shadow of his love for sinners like us who have turned to him by faith, trust in him, and by his help daily seek to live out his commandments. You know, I cannot fully comprehend how or why that Jesus loves his people so much. But I can only trust him and thank him for it. And knowing this makes me want to listen to him more. Doesn't it for you? To live for him more. Christian, the most powerful resource at your disposal to energize your obedience and to fortify your faith is to grow in understanding the the infinite depths of the love of the Father expressed to you through Christ His Son. Only then will you be enticed to draw nearer to Him. That when you feel weak and cold, you need to be reminded of the warmth of His grace and it will make you want to walk closer to Him to experience that warmth. And so be reminded of Jesus' words, of how closely He binds Himself to those who hear His word and do it. It is so intimate a union and so intimate a bond that it supersedes even that of family blood because He shed His own blood to bring us into His Father's household. 
that we might be adopted into the family of God. And nothing will change our status and identity as a member of His household. And because we have this assurance and blessing, the exhortation is this, let us therefore hear the words of our Heavenly Father and live to obey His loving commandments, which He instructs us to do for our highest good and for His glory. It is a joy, isn't it, to listen to the words of one who overflows with love and kindness that He would send His Son to suffer in our place, that we might be brought into His family where only blessings and grace abound. And so then, therefore, let us hear God's word and daily strive to bear the fruit of obedience and devotion to Him who has proved Himself so worthy of our happiest obedience and devotion. Let's pray together. O Lord, we thank You for the immeasurable love and grace that You have shown us through Christ Your Son and not only His work but in His person as He reveals and explains You, our Father, to us. We thank You for the grace that has saved us and we ask now for Your help and that same grace sustaining us, training us toward godliness, obedience, all unto your glory, which you so rightly deserve. Would you empower us each day by your Spirit and strengthen us in the weakness of our faith so that we might live to please you and that to our joy and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.